today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the policy model that works for the Defense Department could work for your agency too. Other executive branch officials and other agencies should look at the NDAA and, and look at how it would be helpful to their agency if policy bills passed on an annual basis to help them achieve their objectives. And the intelligent data solutions for the Defense Intelligence Agency. We have common data fabrics, cross-domain solutions to make sure how we move from low to high, high to low, all the data classification levels. It's Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs is pausing its electronic health record system rollout. The agency says 209 employees in the central Ohio healthcare system have COVID and can't work. The agency says the rollout in central Ohio will start April 30th instead of March 5th. An update to the Vendor Support Center for the General Services Administration's up and running. Rich Carlson, Senior Program Analyst for GSA's eBuy, says his agency's improved the center's design, security, and user experience. Carlson says content will be easier for users to find in the new format. You can read more about these and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. Congress will get back to work today on the next vehicle to fund federal agencies after February 18th. The current continuing resolution expires a month from today. Bill Greenwald's non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a founder of the Silicon Valley Defense Group. He's former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Policy, and he's writing about the budget process in the Hill newspaper. Bill, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You title this piece, A Call to Regular Order, Joe Manchin and the Anomaly of the NDAA. The piece is about what's going on on Capitol Hill budget-wise and authorization-wise. With all due respect to you, my friend, I love you, but what difference do you think this is going to make at this point in time when Congress has proven so intransigent? Welcome, Bill. Well, well, thanks, Francis. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ever the eternal optimist. I, I've always worked for, uh, for middle-of-the-road centrist uh, members of, uh, of the Senate, and uh, I, I, I always see the, the potential of a return to regular process, regular order, the way things are still tried to be done on, on my old committee, the Senate Armed Services Committee. And uh, I, I still think that there's, there's the opportunity to do that not just in the appropriations bills, but uh, in, in other authorization policy bills as well. All right. Most people talk about regular order in the context of budget. What, where else should it apply that it doesn't today, Bill? Well, it, the, the, the first breakdown in regular order started occurring on the policy bills, on the authorization bills. You couldn't get those passed. I couldn't get floor time, couldn't get those passed. And so a lot of those policy provisions transferred over to the appropriations bills, which essentially... Uh, created uh, problems for those bills, and they couldn't get their individual bills passed, so they consolidated them on consolidated appropriations bills. And that became harder to pass, so therefore we couldn't get a budget passed by October, therefore we needed CRs. It's just, it's a rolling effect. And so I think really you have to go back to the original policy committees and try to go start regular order there. All right, we've got a link to your piece in the Hill newspaper at thedailyscooppodcast.com, and you write, in the absence of regular order, the legislative process has become leadership driven and can barely keep up with passing the types of bills that you just alluded to. And you write, these end up being written by leadership and executive branch staffs with no input by the rank and file members. Why is that bad, Bill? 
Because you need member buy-in to actually achieve the long-term compromise and working relationships that are necessary to make the Congress functional again. And, and by just having a bunch of staffs from the leadership side working with uh, OMB staff and, and White House staff, you're not getting that buy-in. You're, you're basically being told you're part of the party, you know where to vote, let's get moving. And, and that just does not contribute to the type of uh, work, working relationships that are necessary. All right. You talk about your pet project for a number of years, the National Defense Authorization Act. And you write, this has been done, the NDAA, as close to regular order as possible, despite legislative obstacles, rising partisanship and the decline in civility in Congress and in the nation as a whole. It, the way that you write this it sounds like you think that process is in danger of succumbing to all of the things that you've talked about so far in this conversation. Is, am I reading you right? You are reading me right. Absolutely. It's the last bill that still somehow survives uh, along this process of hearings, of subcommittee markups, of full committee markups, of conference committees with the House. And frankly, it's, it's in jeopardy. It's been in jeopardy for the last five or six years and, and, and kind of barely made it over uh, the, the goal line. And so I think this is, it. you know, it's a time to look at this and see how successful it has been, but also how it could be translated into other areas, uh, such as maybe foreign policy or energy or, or, uh, or infrastructure. Yeah. And that's the challenge. I mean, as, as the eternal optimist that you position yourself at, as at the beginning of this conversation, it strikes me the, the wish, the goal, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it strikes me broadly for the entire conversation and not just for your own intellectual sentiment. The goal should be, how do we get back to all of this stuff being done the way that it was intended to be and not just saving this one thing that is the last bastion of hope, right? Absolutely. And, and it, frankly, it re requires the members themselves to start looking at why is this one bill still going through? How can in, in the committee that I'm working on, how can we get things over the goal line? And how can we work with our leadership to do that versus just listening to leadership being told what to do? And, and, I, and I think there are a number of, of members who I can't imagine aren't uh, frustrated by what has come about in the last 15 to 20 years up on the Hill. And I think they would like to see that, yeah, they want to, they came to Washington to do something. And, and I think they would like to see that. Is there something that the executive branch can do to drive this? I mean, one of the things that I think is, is fascinating about the NDA discussion in particular is the willingness, especially over the last five years, I would say maybe it, it's been longer and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it strikes me. It's just been within the last five years that the joint chiefs, have been more vocal on the Hill about you got to get the NDAA done and CRs are killing us and you have to stop. They don't, Congress doesn't stop, but it strikes me that that's a, an example of the executive branch or the advisors of the executive branch doing something, taking specific deliberate action. And I wonder if there's other specific deliberate action that executive branch people, like the people who listen to this program, can take to try to drive this process forward, Bill? Yeah, no, I, th I think uh, a lot of the executive branch officials kind of uh, did a pact with the devil and kind of thought that all we really need is appropriations bills and we don't need these authorization bills and we don't need these authorization committees and we just kind of put them in the corner. And that in the last 10 years has proven to be a, uh, a bad choice. And even the, even the Pentagon 
thought about that for a while and wasn't as supportive of the NDA as, as it used to be. I think they figured out that both bills are needed. Uh, you not only need someone to focus on policy, but someone to focus on the actual appropriation of, of money. And I think other executive branch officials and other agencies should look at the NDAA and, and look at how it would be helpful to their agency if policy bills passed on an annual basis to help them achieve their objectives. Nobody puts authorizers in a corner, Bill. That's just, <laughs> just can't do that. It's great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you, Francis. I appreciate it. You can find a link to Bill's piece in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. February 8th is the Delivering Better Outcomes Through Automation event FedScoop's putting on. It's at the Ritz-Carlton West End in D.C. from 8.30 to 3. You can read more about it and register through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Intelligence Agency will become the Pentagon's manager of open source data. The director of DIA, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, says he expects the designation, quote, very, very soon. Ramesh Menon is the chief information officer at the Defense Intelligence Agency. I hosted a panel recently with him, Cal Voraganti of Equinix, and Brian Shromsky of Verizon Wireless. Ramesh told me some of the reasons data is so important at DIA. We are the foundational military intelligence for the country. We provide our intelligence report to the Joint Chief of Staff, to the Congress, to the warfighters in the field, and the core integration between our partners and allies, especially the 5Y partners. So data is the core foundation of what we do, and we are building modern digital platforms to ensure we extract the value from this data and leveraging technologies like cloud computing and modern networks, uh, including our commercial partners to extend those networks to the edge and reach out to the places to ensure that our mission is successful. So, and as you probably know, we are the provider and owner of the JVIX top secret network fabric. Cal, welcome. Uh, thanks for joining the conversation today. What are you seeing regarding the challenges that Ramesh talked about a moment ago or other challenges that our agencies are running up against parsing all this data? Yeah, thanks, Francis. Uh, the first thing we are noticing is that a lot of agencies are dealing with now data sets, which are extremely large in size. So rather than moving data to where the compute is located, now the paradigm is shifting. You are moving compute to where the data is located. So increasingly we are seeing hybrid and distributed architectures. That's point number one. Uh, second thing we're noticing is that um, organizations for AI increasingly are using external data sources or data sets to create more accurate AI models. So they are very worried about the lineage of the data. Where is this data set coming from, right? And also if, if they're using other pre-existing models, using transfer learning, they're worrying about, hey, is this model, you know, does it have any uh, you know, biases against certain type of people or certain type of situations, right? So lineage of information is also extremely important and they're asking us for uh, solutions which keep track of the lineage. And the last thing we are noticing is that increasingly um, agencies are dealing with coalition partners globally so they need to have solutions where their solution spans across different countries and different regions of the world. So they want a single provider to be able to give them uh, locations globally and also secure network fabrics interconnecting all of these different locations. Brian, welcome. Thanks for joining the conversation. 
Um, Cal's talking about distributed computing and is the concept that a lot of organizations uh, are used, the term they're using to describe what Cal just laid out. At first, there was a lot of conversation about the risk involved, but there's a risk in keeping everything centralized and keeping all your data centralized and sending it out, isn't there? Yeah, good question, Francis, and to my two fellow panelists. I mean, it's an interesting topic, moving data. As the two have already previously mentioned, what we see now is actually moving that data closer to the edge itself, right? So uh, when you look at you know, war fighters, right, getting the information they need in a timely manner, how do you do that, right? So not only do we not want to lock up that data, we actually want to unlock that data and actually get it closer to the edge, right? So that's why you hear new terms of taking cloud computing over the last couple of years, because now you're hearing edge computing, right? Is actually taking that data center and moving it closer to the edge. And technologies like 5G, which everybody's excited about, is actually transferring that data in a faster method. Um, so yeah, it, it's, a, it's a real problem today, right? How do we unleash that data? And more importantly, get it down to the field, if you will, but most importantly, in a secure manner. Right, because this is going to be critical infrastructure that we're talking about here. Right, so as we look over the next couple of years, we get into autonomous vehicles, and we're not talking about drones. Right, think about forklifts, and for instance, a, a army warehouse. Right, you're going to want that data out there quickly so they can move uh, men, women, material uh, in and out of that facility. You're going to need a lot of data. More importantly, you're going to need a lot of connectivity to actually make that a reality. So we only see it exponentially increasing. But more and most importantly, as Cal mentioned, right, the integrity of the data, but how do you secure that data as well? Cal, there's a lot going on here regarding how that data gets to where it's supposed to go. Um, and one of those big challenges is how that data is shared across organizations, maybe from one military branch to another or one agency or a bureau of an agency to another, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and what we are noticing is the era of uh, what we call as AI marketplaces, where different organizations can basically have a marketplace notion where they can advertise the data that they want to share and consumers can actually get data from uh, that location. And it's not just for data, but it's also for algorithms. Uh, so, so that is a notion which I think increasingly will become more prevalent to not only uh, allow for data sharing, uh, between different organizations, but even within an organizations, different groups, they're hesitant to share data with each other. Data is like the, your crown jewel. So they're extremely protective about it. So the notion of AI marketplaces, data marketplaces is going to be becoming more and more common. And just like you go to any Amazon or any other shopping site and you buy and sell books and uh, other perishables, data and AI algorithms will also be shared in a systematic manner. Uh, in a marketplace, <clears throat> which is driven underneath the covers by you know technologies like blockchain to keep track of who is doing what, etc. Ramesh, how are you seeing that interplay, that exchange of data playing out at DIA? Francis, good question. I tend to concur with Kaladar in his thinking. Architecturally, we do a couple of things. We have common data fabrics, cross-domain solutions to make sure how we move from low to high, high to low, all the data classification levels. Obviously, data sharing in DoD is a little bit more complicated because we have different levels of trust and how it's being used in the mission, who has the authority. So we take this data sharing very seriously. It's integrated into our architecture. 
as we extend our data centers with hybrid multi-cloud, we are making sure that we have a common data fabric. In fact, I'm working closely with General Groen, the director of Jake, to make sure we stand up the joint common foundation, the JCF, where we should be able to share the AI models. So this data, we use the data for training, and then we use the trained AI models for inferences in the applications, mission applications. So we can share not only the data, but we could share the models or the APIs, which has the actual inference and the application that can be consumed by a mission partners or mission applications. What are you doing and, and what, what works for you to federate data analytics so that you can use AI to its full potential, Ramesh? So I would say I'm not going to make a decision based on just data. It depends on the mission need and priorities of the country. And the architectural decisions should be following the mission needs and the speed of relevance for what is required for the mission. And the underlying mission requirements drive the architecture. Although we have common, broad, distributed collection hubs and fabrics, and they're all integrated, but we need to know how to use it effectively on a specific mission set. Ramesh Menon, the CIO of the Defense Intelligence Agency. You can find a link to the video of the entire panel discussion in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helped me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Our next show debuts tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. <laughs>